My name is Eddie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I, uh, first I'd like, because I have a quick forgetter, I'd like to thank uh, the committee for inviting me here to share this this weekend with you all. It's a, it's a privilege. I'd like to particularly thank Lou for asking me and uh, Nat and his wife uh, for the friendship and, and concern they've shown to me this weekend. I'd like to thank you all for the privilege of renewing old friendships and for the opportunity to make some new ones. And I say that from the bottom of my heart because that's what this is about. There are two people in this audience, for instance, that I've loved for many, many years and they're sitting in a front row here and uh, we're brothers and sisters. And uh, when I see them, uh, I know that. I know what's between us. And that's kind of the magic thing that occurs uh, for those of us that have had the chance to sit at the banquet that's prepared here, the spiritual banquet that's prepared for us already when we get to AA. I'm a uh, member of the CIA. That's Catholic, Irish, and alcoholic. <laughs> I'm also a lawyer. Thought I'd get all the negatives out of the way first before we get started here. I've come a long way from the days uh, of what it was like when I got here. Uh, there's no magic way to get from there to here. I look back often and I've heard thousands of definitions about what it's like to be an alcoholic and what it's like to be in the position of the alcoholic. And I'm talking specifically about the perspective, the look of the alcohol, look at the alcoholic that non-alcoholics have, because they do kind of look at us as if we're a little bit more than mildly weird at times. And uh, I think the best description of that I ever heard was it was was a long time ago, and it comes from a, an old Irish uh, music hall ditty, and it goes uh, this way: How well I do remember that evening in September. I was carrying home my load with manly pride. When my legs began to stutter, I laid down in the gutter, and a pig came up and laid down by my side. We were singing, it's fair weather, when good friends get together, and a lady passing by was heard to say, you can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses, and the pig got up and slowly walked away. I, I really never know how to get started here. Uh, uh, I'm here for one purpose and one purpose only, and uh, that's to share with you uh, and for you to share with me our experience, strength, and hope. I'll promise you two things tonight, the brief time we have together here. I'll tell you the truth as best God gives me the light to see the truth, and I won't talk about anything that I haven't personally experienced, drunk and sober. Let me tell you about my last drunk first. Uh, on the morning after, the, the night before of my last drunk, I, I woke up in a dark room. 
I, that was not an unusual situation for me. I would frequently wake up in dark rooms. And I sat on the edge of the bed with uh, my brain operating in slow time, uh, almost dead stop. But, but you know the, the way it is. If somebody put a cigarette in your mouth, you'd have to wait till they told you to light it. It's just not, things weren't moving too well. I was in the Air Force at the time, uh, keeping the world safe for democracy, and I, I was stationed at uh, McGuire Air Force Base. And I, I lived in a bachelor officer's quarters. I, I was flying airplanes for the taxpayer. And, and I thought, that's where I am. I, I just had that idea in my head that I was in my room at McGuire Air Force Base. And as I began to become just a little bit conscious, I looked around and uh, things weren't right. There was wildlife on the walls that was different from the wildlife that would be on the walls in my room. And uh, there was a woman in the bed beside me that uh, I didn't recognize. Uh, and she was a different color from me. Uh, and I got up and I thought, I better check this out because I don't think I'm at home. And uh, <laughs> I walked outside and sure enough, I wasn't. Uh, where I was, was in Africa. And I didn't know how the hell I got there. And I didn't know where in Africa I was either. We're not totally insensitive people. We know when that fear sets in that there are certain obvious questions we'd like to ask but can't. You can't stop somebody on the street and say, pardon me, sir, uh, can you tell me what country this is? <laughs> Do you know the date, <laughs> approximately? Uh... I can't remember my name. Can you help me out? <laughs> so we kid around a little bit. Uh, we, we make it a point to stop, if you like me, and, and, and start conversations with people. I found a guy that spoke a little bit of English and uh, asked him where he, was, where he lived. And he said, well, I live right here in Addis Ababa. And I thought, aha. <laughs> now, that was in Ethiopia. And uh, I looked in my pocket. I found a key that said the Royal Haile Selassie Hotel, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And I was hoping that the Royal Haile Selassie Hotel in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, was uh, somewhere near where I was. A uh, uh, fellow helped me out, and I got a taxi back to that hotel. And the Air Force, things began to come back to me a little bit. The Air Force that I'd gone over there with uh, to uh, fly uh, for the United Nations, this is in the early 60s, very early 60s, um, had left. They were gone when I got back to the hotel. And I didn't know whether they were coming back either. Obviously, they did. You'd have somebody else speaking up here for openers if they didn't, but uh, they came back a couple of days later, and I sweated bullets. And that morning I got back to that hotel and uh, I had three drinks to uh, calm my nerves. And those were the last three drinks of alcohol that I've had from that day to this. And that was the 3rd of September, 1962. Now, I'm incredibly and eternally grateful that they were the last drinks of alcohol that I've had to take. 
Let me back up, uh, give you just a little bit of background. I think that's important. I think some of our case history is important, and it's important because I found out that I was an alcoholic, not out there, but in here, listening to other poor fools like me stand before audiences and talk about their drinking, the right place, the bells rang. I realized today that our case histories are nothing more than a projection of the symptoms of alcoholism. And if my symptoms are your symptoms, maybe what's wrong with you is called alcoholism. That's the way it worked for me. That's how I found out I was an alcoholic, because I came to this fellowship fully convinced that I wasn't. One, I was too young. I was 28 years old. Now, that's not very young today, but believe me, 30 years ago, 29 years ago, that was young. I would listen to people who were 50 and 60 years old, and they'd talk about drinking for 30 and 40 years, round the clock, never do a sober breath. I could still add and subtract, and I'd think I'd be glad to quit when I get as old as you, you know. It's, but I love those neon signs, and I have some more years to go, and when the time comes, I'll quit. But in the meantime, I can't be an alcoholic because I'm too young. Far more insidious, and I know there's at least one person in this room who has gone through this or is going through this. I was convinced I was not an alcoholic for another reason, and that reason was more insidious and more deadly. I was convinced I wasn't an alcoholic because everybody knows that an alcoholic's basic problem is booze, and my problems were deeper. And if I could figure those out, then I wouldn't drink so much. I've been around AA just long enough to tell you that all those other problems are called alcoholism, and I don't separate them out from the personality. I grew up in a small coal mining town in, uh, in Pennsylvania. I grew up on county relief uh, welfare. My dad was a, a black lung coal miner, uh, uh, totally disabled, and there was a lot of kids in our family, and he couldn't work any longer, and we grew up on, on welfare. Uh, and it wasn't bad. I don't mean to say that to you as if it was something bad. There was a lot of love in that home that I remember today and cherish today. But the fact remains that when I was growing up, all I wanted to do was get out of there. So when I was 17 years old, I uh, threatened to run away with the circus unless my parents let me go into the armed forces. The Korean War was on, and I was afraid I was going to miss it. I saw too many John Wayne movies like most everybody else I knew at that point in time, and uh, so they let me enlist, and the caveat was that I had to enlist in the Navy. I wanted to go somewhere else, so I enlisted in the Navy at age 17. I went through a basic training in a little school for uh, aviation. I was a bomb loader and a, uh, worked on guns, which I liked at the time because that was hip, you know, to work on guns. And... Uh, when I came out of training in 1950, early 1952, uh, two guys out of my company got drafted into the Marine Corps and sent to Korea. Uh, Korean conflict was on. Uh, myself and another idiot, we went to Korea. And all I can tell you about that experience was that I spent a year over there with the Marine Corps. Uh, I was cold in the winter, hot in the summer, and scared to death most of the time and just wanted to get back. And I did come back and was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas. I was 18 years old, uh, 19 years old. And I was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas. 
I'm a test taker. I can take tests like nobody else in the world I know. It's a significant fact in my life. It's not a virtue. It's just a fact and a factor. I was a second-class petty officer at the time, and I was stationed at this field at age 19 in Texas, in Corpus Christi. Now, I, I look back and put myself back at that place and that time because from the perspective of the now time, the symptoms of alcoholism, as I understand them to be today, began to appear in my life back there. Now, they appeared in my life probably the same way they appeared in your life. It doesn't happen overnight. I was a kid. I was a punk. I loved those neon signs. I thought there was nothing better to do than to go out on a Friday night and sit in a gin mill with the rest of the guys, brag about all the women we chased, never told each other we never caught any, we just bragged about it, get drunk, go back to the base, get up Saturday morning, be a little bit sick. I played a lot of sports. I had a good, healthy body at the time. Uh, who cared? was so good on Friday nights that I began to do it on Saturday nights and then began to do it on Sunday nights as long as I had the money. And I can remember the first time I showed up for work late on a Monday. I fell asleep in a cotton field on the way back to the base and woke up about noon with a gorgeous white uniform on and uh, ran down to the hangar where I worked to see the chief petty officer who was like a father figure to explain to him that I didn't mean to do this, that, that, that I really meant to be there. And he kind of laughed and patted me on the behind and said, go take a shower, ho, 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 all good sailors do that. You know, about the 15th time that I did that, he didn't say ho, ho, ho anymore. I've been around AA a while, and it seems to me, and you've heard the stories and you've had your own life experiences, it seems to me that a low-grade idiot wearing a tight hat could experience half of what we experience and decide something is wrong. You know, you would think moderately intelligent human beings that have the same capacity. And I look back and I think, how did we ever do the things we did and not realize early something's wrong? Well, I look back to that time in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, and my relationship with that chief petty officer, who was a father figure almost to me. And I know exactly how I was able to go on and ignore what was obvious to a fool. And it happened to me this way. One day, when he was getting on my back for what I was doing wrong, like magic, I don't know how it happened, but it was absolutely magical. One day, when he was on my back for what I was doing wrong, I concluded that it was his fault. <laughs> now, if you can do that, you can take this disease places. If you can blame others for what you do wrong, you can really go places with booze and other things. If you do one more thing that I did, you can get into orbit with it. And the other thing is, get quickly to the place where the only voice you listen to is the voice of the idiot that lives in your head. And I did that. And that idiot that lived in my head made suggestions to me that I carried out. I did things that got their attention. If you come in in the middle of the night uh, with a belly full of booze and you sleep on the top bunk and you don't get out to go to the bathroom and it leaks through on the guy below, you get his attention. 
If you never wash your clothes and they hang in a bag at the foot of your bunk, and you see these other guys go by and they get that green look on their face from the odor that's coming from your laundry bag, you get their attention. If you're the guy that starts the fight and can't finish it and everybody else gets a fat lip, uh, they don't want too much to do with you. If you're like me and you always suspected that they were SOBs and they isolate you, it confirms the suspicion. You drink alone and talk to the voice. And the voice will take you places if the voice of yours is like the voice of mine. One day I was walking down the streets of Corpus Christi all by myself about 3 o'clock in the morning. I saw this woman's wash on the line. Men's clothes, women's clothes, pants, brassiere, slip shirts, you name it, they were there. And the voice said, why don't you take them? And I said, good idea. <laughs> so I took them all. Uh, 40 or 50 pounds of clothing. And uh, then I put them all on. Uh, Men's clothes, women's clothes, everything, on. I was walking down the street with my arms stuck out like a ruptured crow, and uh, if you do that, you're going to draw a cop. And if you're like me, the cop will stop you and say, what are you doing? That's 35 years ago, and I still haven't thought of an intelligent answer to that question. I don't know what I was doing. But I got locked up, and I woke up the next day. I didn't get into a lot of trouble. Even the judge laughed when he heard the description of the crime. And, uh, I woke up in jail, though, the next morning with vague memories of what happened the night before. I looked over in the corner, and there was a pile of clothes there. Uh, and I remembered some of the things that had gone on and said to myself, you didn't do that. And a voice said, oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> you know, I knew something then. I knew that I had to go back to that base that the guys that I lived with, that I didn't get along with, were going to find out, not that I was in jail, but why I was in jail. And I couldn't stand it. So to make it easier to bear the pain and the shame that comes from that sort of behavior, I took another drink of alcohol. I was already an alcoholic. I knew nothing about alcoholism, but I was already an alcoholic. If you are an alcoholic and take one drink of alcohol, it seems to me, from my experience, both personal and from watching you, sooner or later, you must drink to excess. As a result of the pain and shame that I felt, I took a drink of alcohol. I was already an addict. Sooner or later, I drank to excess. As a result of drinking to excess, I got into another jam. To make it easier to bear the pain and the shame of that jam, I took a drink of alcohol. Sooner or later, drank to excess and got into another jam. Now, that's my case history in a nutshell. I wouldn't have to tell you anything else about it other than to tell you what you already know. And that is that if you continue to do this, the jams get closer and closer together. If you have moral standards of behavior, they come between you and taking a drink. One by one, you break them until when you arrive at AA, if you're like me, there's no mystery as to being bankrupt spiritually, emotionally, physically, certainly, and mentally. They go. They disappear. 
I have yet to hear of a guy or a gal who came to this fellowship with a drinking problem, went back out and came back and told us, I had a great time, it got better. We all talk about how worse it gets when we go back out. I would go to great lengths, uh, as you did, I'm sure, to uh, try to shape up and turn over a new leaf. Usually it was prompted by uh, a recognition that I'm going downhill fast and something would get my attention and I'd try to shape up. One day I saw, during one of these shape-up periods, I saw a notice on the bulletin board and it said, uh, Fleet-wide competition for appointments to Annapolis, the Naval Academy. And I saw that thing. They were giving out 20 appointments to the enlisted ranks in the Navy and Marine Corps that year. This was 1953. And I, and I thought, that's for me. I'm going to take those tests. And I took them. And I passed them all. And I got one of those appointments to Annapolis. And I wasn't surprised. I thought, this is the way life should go. Um, they've discovered my genius. Uh, I'll go to that Naval Academy. Uh, I'll go right through it. There's no question about that. And, uh, you know, the dream time kind of conversations we have with ourselves. Sooner or later, I'll, I'll graduate. I'll be an ensign. Uh, somewhere down the line, I'll be an admiral. I'll get a battleship. <laughs> and I'll get those SOBs that have been getting me. <laughs> that was the plan. And all I had to do was kind of stay straight till the following spring and report to the preparatory academy, and uh, I would have been on my way. But I had another encounter with the booze uh, in December of that year and had another conversation with the voice. I was out drinking by myself in a gin mill that was five or six miles from the base, and I came out of that gin mill stone drunk, ready to walk back to the base. The little voice in my head said, why don't you just get a car? I said, good idea. So I ran around the parking lot and found a car with keys in the car. And I took that car, not knowing how to drive a car and never having had a driver's license. And this was in 1953, and it was an old straight stick auto that I managed to get started and get in first gear. But I didn't know how to get it from first to second. And if you're going down the road in first gear at about 20 miles an hour, that car sounds like it's going to take off and get airborne. And if you do that, you most certainly will draw a comp. And I did. And they came up right behind me with the bubblegum machine flashing. All alcoholics are geniuses, no exceptions. I'm no exception. Those cops pulled up behind me, and I pulled that car over that I was driving and slid over to the passenger side, just as cool as could be. And I opened the door and got out of the car and crawled under the car. to hide from the police. Who were watching me do it.
And they sat down on the curb with their flashlight and waited for me to come out. <laughs> and this time the judge did not laugh. This time they threatened me with a Texas prison sentence. And this time I cried big time. The Navy that I hated, the chief petty officer who was my mortal enemy, the division officer who was worse than Captain Quig, all came down and said, uh, don't send this young man to a Texas prison. He's a Korean War veteran. Uh, give him back to us, and we will court-martial him. <laughs> and they did, and I got court-martialed uh, for the first time. Uh, and I quit drinking forever. And I lasted about three weeks because I can't stand sobriety. The curse of the drinking man, the curse of the alcoholic, is not the DTs and waking up in the gutter. The curse is to be sober and can't stand it. I knew I had troubles with alcohol. For a brief period of time, the liar had died. I couldn't say this is bad luck. This is being stationed in Texas. This is having the wrong parents. This is being of the wrong religion. You know, this was nuts, and I knew it was nuts. And for a very short period of time, I knew booze had something to do with it, so I set about quitting drinking forever at age 19. And I lasted about three weeks because I couldn't stand it and started to drink again. Um, four years after I enlisted in the Navy, I was out of the Navy. I used to say, I got out. I have to tell you, I wasn't allowed to re-enlist. Uh, I went back to my hometown in upstate Pennsylvania, my parents had seen me go away, a mixed-up teenager, and I'd seen them, I think, twice in the four years that I was away. When I came back, I came back a lunatic. Uh, I wouldn't work. I started to collect unemployment. I drank every day. I had a bunch of younger brothers and a sister at home, and I scandalized them all. I ran in and out every back door in that little town, and there was the, the town I come from is a mining town, and the population peaked during World War II at 600, and it was downhill from there, so everybody knows your business. And if you're Irish Catholic and come from a big clan, you're related to at least 50% of the people in the town. And I just ran amok. Um, I was there about three months and had to leave the town. Uh, I had to leave because I listened to the voice. Uh, the voice told me one night to take another car, and uh, this time it was the only police car in the town. And, uh, <laughs> if you do that, you really get their attention, and they tell you, leave or else, and I know what the or else was, and I left. I, I, I loved that town. I, I can remember coming back to it uh, when I came back from Korea. I got there in the middle of the night and kneeled down, and I kissed the ground. I just wanted to get back there. And when I'm age 21, 22, and I'm being run out of that town, I have that peculiar sense that the alcoholic has who needs them to hell with them. And I left. And I went to New Jersey and got a job spraying automobiles in an automobile factory. And I lasted a month or two and got fired because I didn't show up enough because of drinking. Uh, I went down to Philadelphia and got a job in a machine shop and got fired from that because I didn't show up often enough. I went to Baltimore, Maryland and got a job pumping gas and got fired from pumping gas and was working my way up in the world. I tended bar and got fired because I drank too much. I, uh, 
finally got a job cooking in a White Tower hamburger joint, you know, where they cooked these little quarter hamburgers and fell asleep in the chili one night, and they fired me for that, too. Uh, you know, who needed them? I just kind of got lost in America. I went down to Washington, D.C., and just got lost in America. Um, got myself a job working for an airline. Uh, uh, I was going to do things uh, with my life. Uh, alcoholics are always going to do things with their life. Uh, but later, not now, next week, uh, next semester, I'm going to register for college and use my GI Bill. But in the meantime, I'll have a drink. And five or six semesters goes by, and I don't do anything. Uh, next payday, I'm going to save some money and, 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 and buy some decent clothes. But in the meantime, I'll have a drink. And, of course, I never buy any decent clothes. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to put some money aside and clean myself up and... Uh, get a nice date with a nice blonde-headed girl. In the meantime, I think I'll have a drink, and I never had any dates. Uh, time just goes by. Years go by, and nothing happens. You just get kind of, if you're like me, seedy and weird. You just get real weird and seedy and kind of live in the land of Oz and experiment with other funny chemicals that come along and go back to drinking what does the job. Uh, I got to where my favorite drink was Muscatel wine. Uh, I was in my early 20s, and I liked Muscatel wine. And on payday, I'd get cheap gin and spark the Muscatel wine. And uh, you can go places with that, I'm telling you. You can lay flat in the gutter, for instance, flat out, and puke straight up in the air. And if you're under 25, as I was, you can probably just duck a little bit when it comes back down. I would guess if you're older, you'd have to get by with blinking your eyes. <laughs> I lived in boarding houses. I was always going to move out of boarding houses and rooming houses, but I never got to it. So I'd stay in one until they threw me out and then go to another one. People would get picked up for drunk driving I would get picked up for drunk walking. I would get picked up for bizarre behavior. You can't pee on fire plugs in Washington, D.C. And when a cop comes, tell him, well, dogs do it, and I'm as good as a dog. They don't want to listen to that. They'll put you away. Every once in a while, I'd insist on my rights, and... Uh, I'd get them right across the face. Uh, and I got to where I hated the cops, and I would do things to try to get even with the cops. Usually at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when the ingenious thoughts would come as how to get even. I used to turn in false fire alarms and then hide and watch the cops come and the firemen come and laugh. One night I turned in a false fire alarm right across the street from the boarding house where I lived and ran around a corner and climbed a tree to watch the cops come. And they did. And it was January. There wasn't a leaf on that tree. <laughs> cops said, come down. I said, who, me? <laughs> 200-pound canary sitting up in a tree. 
wondering how he was caught with not a leaf on the tree. I was working for an airline and was uh, fixing airplanes. God pity them. And I got fired from that job, too. I would go to great lengths to get to work on time because I could never get to work on time for a full week. One morning I was out all night drinking and I thought, I'm going to get to work today no matter what. Now, keep in mind that at this time I had, my wardrobe was coveralls. I had sweat stains down to my waist. I smelled like a goat. I didn't bathe often. I had a bunch of rotten teeth from the wine. I let my hair grow long. And I had a beard. And that wasn't hip then. That was before it was hip to have long hair and a beard. I was hip before I knew it was hip to be hip, if you know what I mean. And, uh, one day I went into work and uh, just not going to be late. So I drank till about 5 o'clock in the morning and went in there at 6 and I didn't have to be there late. And while I was there waiting to go to work, I got tired and I went to sleep back in the back and woke up about 11 o'clock in the morning from way back behind the hangar. And I wanted to turn into the invisible man because I vomited and the vomit was on my beard and on my clothes and uh, I looked elegant, wonderful. And I have to go through the work area. It's one level of embarrassment to go to work late. You haven't lived in embarrassment till you're there and you're late. <laughs> I got up and came forward and the foreman said, where in the name of God were you? Back there. What were you doing? Sleeping. Why? I was tired. What am I going to tell him? Please, God, let it be 4.30 and let me get the hell out of here so I can get a drink and I'll be invisible for another day. How do we explain these people that come into AA who looked like I looked, who smelled like I smelled, who acted like I acted, and want to convince you they were a great lover? How do you square that? I'm amazed at that. I'm absolutely amazed at that. In those three years I was down in Washington, D.C., I never had a date. <laughs> Maybe I had a couple of dates, you know, but they were coyote dates. Uh, and you know what they are, right? For those of you that don't, that's where if you wake up in the morning and it's sleeping on your arm, you'd rather chew your arm off than wake it up. Accidental encounters of the fifth kind. That's what kind of a lover we were. One day I got fired. Union couldn't keep my job. I'd been laid off without pay. I don't know how many times. Finally they said, that's it, you're fired. I got thrown out of the last boarding house I lived in. I was sitting in a park across the street from the post office with my beard and my coveralls. And what I'm about to tell you next is kind of improbable, but uh, it happened nonetheless. I saw a sign across the street that said, join the Air Force. And I thought, that's for me, man. That's my way out. So I went bopping over to see this recruiting sergeant with the, my beard and long hair and rotten teeth and half drunk in the morning. 
and told him I wanted to enlist in the Air Force, and he wanted no part of me. But I told him I was an honorably discharged veteran, an American citizen. I had a right to enlist. And to get rid of me, he gave me his tests and made the biggest mistake of his life because I can take tests drunk also. And I think I got the highest scores he'd ever recorded, uh, which meant nothing because I never did anything with the brain God gave me ever. And I got enlisted into the Air Force. Got a place to sleep. Got my hair cut, got a shave, got my teeth fixed. Got sober by accident. Was in about three months and I got called into the personnel office. And they said, as a result of the scores you scored on these exams, we want to give you some more exams. Those additional exams were the Air Force officer's qualification test, flight aptitude test, and a two-year college equivalency exam. And uh, I took them and I passed them all. And a month or so after that, I got a letter from the chief of staff of the Air Force um, indicating that I was accepted to flight training and they were going to make an officer out of me if I wanted it. And I wasn't too surprised. I thought, well, if I can't be an admiral, I'll be a general. But uh, if I can't get a battleship, I'll get a bomber. Uh, but I'll still get those SOBs that have been getting me. And that was the plan. And I went to Lackland Air Force Base for pre-flight training in San Antonio. And uh, the gate slammed shut. Uh, I was there 15 months. Uh, when I first got there, I was a wonderful specimen. Uh, I remember not too long before that, before I got into the Air Force, uh, coming out of a shower in this boarding house and inspecting the body. You know, as you go by a mirror, drunks look at their body. Usually they look at their body when they're going past the mirror and they see the reflection in the mirror and go, who's that, you know, and it's you. Uh, and then they'll check things out to make sure it's all okay, you know. I stand there and try to make a bicep and... Uh, Nothing happened with me, folks, nothing. I mean, I could stand there all day and no bicep, nothing. And I showed up in that kind of shape for flight training and, uh, you know, three months later I'm a healthy man and go through it and I graduated. I was a distinguished graduate. I was sent to McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey to fly transport airplanes. I was a second lieutenant. I had a pair of wings on my chest and I thought I had arrived. I felt, man, <laughs> they have discovered me. Look out. I'm going to fly these airplanes. Uh, uh, won't be long. I'll have enough money. I'll buy myself a convertible automobile. I'll meet these long-legged, good-looking, blonde-headed women, and life's going to be mighty fine. And I thought, I'll drink like a gentleman. I'll drink what I see advertised on television. Martinis. I hadn't thought about the problems I'd had with booze, so I started to drink again. Now, I was a distinguished graduate out of flight training and, and, and was welcomed aboard this squadron. And within the next nine months, I was in the local jail six times for everything from drunk walking to fighting with cops to passing out flat in the middle of a highway and not moving um, for any reason. I was grounded because you do things that get your attention if you fly drunk. If you lose an airplane and can't tell them what you did with it, it gets their attention. 
If you get to the place in life with the booze, as I did, where you hear voices and have visions when you try to get sober, and when you start to have those visions, you're sitting in the cockpit of an airplane, and you tell the guy that's sitting beside you about the visions, it really gets their attention. If you say to the captain, where did that mouse come from? And he says, what mouse? Whatever you do, do not tell him the mouse that's coming out of the altimeter. Because he'll look at you like this. And you'll say, only kidding. <laughs> because I uh, almost bled to death. I ruptured a varicosity in my throat uh, and wouldn't go to the doctor, so I just vomited a lot of blood and passed out in my own blood. And they put me in a hospital uh, near death from this loss of blood. They grounded me, they made me go see a shrink, and they court-martialed me. And I thought, who cares? Who cares? The same sons of bitches I knew all my life, who cares? I used to say about this time I found AA, but that's not true because about this time AA found me. And AA found me in the guise of a fella that lived next door to me in the bachelor officer's quarters. We shared a bathroom. This was the only guy on McGuire Air Force Base, and he was a young pilot who knew anything about alcoholism. And one morning when I was in the bathroom, kneeling at Vespers at the commode, slipping and sliding in and uh, calling for O'Rourke and uh, making those noises all drunks make and crying and the blood was coming up again and Kurt was standing in the doorway of the bathroom and I said my god I gotta stop drinking and Kurt said to me do you mean that and I said yes I meant no but I said yes now, here was a guy who was the first of a series of coincidences that are not coincidences, who appeared in my life at crucial times on this journey, on this adventure that we take together. Here was a guy who, to this day, I don't think has a problem with alcohol. He didn't have a problem then. He didn't have a problem years thereafter. But he knew all about alcoholism. This is the end. Because in 1962, when I met Kurt, Kurt had a father who was an alcoholic. And as he stood in the doorway of the bathroom, Kurt told me about his dad. He told me about his father going to a Texas prison for two years for doing what drunks do best, passing bad checks. He told me about being raised by various relatives because his parents got divorced as a result of his father's drinking. He told me about having to hold the old man down when he was a young teenager while he pulled the lizards off when he was going through the DTs. More importantly, Kurt told me 
about his father going to Alcoholics Anonymous and never taking another drink. That old man wrote to me after I got sober, till he died. I said to Kurt, I know what's coming. He suggested I go to AA. Kind of indignantly, I said to him, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And I'll give you his response verbatim. He did what you did. He kind of laughed. And he said, I don't know, Ed, but they'll never turn you down. <laughs> so on the basis of his phone call to AA and then in his car, I was under arrest. He snuck me off the base. We went to meet the president of AA. And he was going to meet us in the Salvation Army building, which is right outside the gate. I didn't want any part of that deal because I have a reputation to take care of, and I don't want to be seen going into a Salvation Army building. Uh, a couple of months before that, I fell asleep in an officer's car in the parking lot of the officer's club and puked and leaned in the puke and froze to the door, you know, and I was worried about losing my reputation, so it makes sense to a drunk. I had a fat lip and a black eye, which was my usual disguise. We go to the Salvation Army building to meet Joe, who is the president of AA. Kurt's behind me, and he's bigger. I got the shakes, and I got a fat lip and a black eye. And I'm in front of him with my raincoat collar up. No rank on the collar. We go inside. We ask the captain that's in there, where's Joe, the president of AA? He points over in the corner and said, that's him. Now, I see this guy over in the corner, and I don't want any part of this deal, because I know who he is sitting over there. Sitting over there in the corner is the meanest man on McGuire Air Force Base. Most people talk about having sponsors that act like sergeant majors. My sponsor was the sergeant major. <laughs> I can't get out. So Kurt pushes me over. Then he gets out. Joe asks me all the questions. Do you drink? Yes. How much? A lot. How much is a lot? I tell him. He says, yeah, that's a lot. Do you want to quit? Yes. I meant no, but I said yes again. Next question. When? Any answer other than right now, and he'd tell me, leave. I said, right now. He said, fine. Sit down. Finally, he said to me, by the way, what's your rank? And as arrogantly as I could say it, I said, second lieutenant. And I got to quote his response because it defined our relationship from that point on. And he said, and I quote, I'll be a son of a bitch. I've been waiting 20 years to get my hands on a second lieutenant. And he did get his hands on a second lieutenant. 
I got drunk about four times the first six months I was in AA, always for a weekend except for that last drunk which I described to you, where I went on maneuvers in Africa. And uh, one day I just didn't take a drink of alcohol. And that was the 3rd of September, 1962. Nothing special happened. I just didn't take a drink of alcohol that day. The next day came along and I didn't take another drink of alcohol. A month goes by and I didn't take a drink of alcohol. Joe had a bunch of buddies in AA. They were all senior sergeants. And they trot their junior officer out like a prized pig, you know, take him to meetings and... <laughs> Yank me by the chain, say, say a few words. I'd say my name, that's enough. Go sit in the corner, supercargo, shut up. Joe went to see my commanding officer and got permission to take me off the base to go to AA meetings, even though I was under arrest. Bring him back by midnight. We don't want him turning into a pumpkin. Have him back. Had to sign me out like a piece of contraband material. And uh, we went to meetings in his car with these other sergeants. And I listened to them. And I got sober. And finally, 90 days went by, and I didn't have a drink of alcohol. And up there in New Jersey in those days, they'd give you a lapel pin, which was had the AA logo, the triangle, and it was gold-colored. And, and the top of the triangle was a G, and on the bottom two corners of that triangle was AA, and it was a dot in the middle. And they'd give you a little speech, and they'd say, the G stands for God. And I'd say, no kidding. And they'd say, well, I guess you can figure out the AA stands for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd say, yeah. And they say, that's you. <laughs> Keep yourself there and you won't have any trouble between God and AA. And I used to think, how tacky. These guys are nuts. But I got that pin. I'd been in the Air Force and in the military a total of 11 years at that point in time. And I never got a good conduct medal, ever. And here I am, 90 days sober, and I got a decoration. And I'm not going to give it up. <laughs> so I stayed sober. I went to meetings. I stayed sober on momentum. I didn't believe a word about the spiritual aspects of Alcoholics Anonymous that I heard talked about from podiums like this. The steps to me were absolutely not applicable. I have to tell you that. They were not applicable to me because I was an atheist. And if you're an atheist, then you don't have to worry about these steps. Now, I'm telling you the truth. I was an honest-to-God atheist at the time. No pun intended. I just was. It wasn't something I chose to be. It just happened to be the way it was. It was not even a subject that interested me. Somewhere at about age 13 or 14, I decided that everything my parents had told me was a fake, and I never worried about that aspect of it from that day on. I just didn't worry about it. I, I, I tell you the truth when I, when I say that. There was no conscience about it, no nothing. It just wasn't there. I don't believe in ghosts. I'm going on my merry way. I would get embarrassed by God references made by these people that I began to respect, the uh, sergeants. But I never said anything to them. I just went. I stayed sober on chasing women because <laughs> I started to look good and I had money in my pocket. I bought a convertible automobile. I took a lot of vacations. I went to a lot of meetings. If you don't drink and you fly airplanes fairly well, they look at you in a new light and they begin to think this might be a good guy to have around. When I don't drink, I work hard. And things began to clear up all by themselves. I used to say people get a little bit honest when they get to AA, but what we do is we just stop telling the lies nobody will believe. Uh, 
if you're sober, if you're sober. I remember one time I showed up for a flight and I had two black eyes, see, two black eyes. I'd been out on maneuvers and I got into an argument and I lost the argument. I had two black eyes. And this major that I was flying with, I was in trouble with anyway. And he said to me, what the hell happened to you? And before I could think, I said, I went to a hockey game and got hit with a hockey puck. It was the middle of the summer. There wasn't a hockey game for six months. You know the lie that's out of your mouth and you can't get it back? And you got to live with it. You know that there's not a soul alive believed it. Well, you stop telling those lies when you stop drinking, but forget the rest of it. Don't spread the truth around too carelessly. Save it for emergencies. I stayed sober on momentum for a couple of years. Um, and I probably still would had it not been for the fact that I have the kind of personality that saved my life. I had the kind of a personality that was subject to the wrong day syndrome. Okay? If you're not drinking and going to meetings and you're like me, everything's cool except on the wrong day. On the wrong day, if I walk into the air operations office stone cold sober and two guys are standing in the corner talking on the wrong day, if they shut up when I walk in the door, they are talking about me. Now, if you give me 12 hours to think about it, I could tell you exactly what they said, even though I hadn't heard a word. If you let me brood on it on the wrong day for 24 or 36 hours, it's time to kill them because of what they said about me. It's time to put a hand grenade in their desk and tie a string to the pin so that when they open the desk drawer, it will explode and they'll die because of what they said about me, even though I hadn't heard a word. On the wrong day, if I go to a supermarket and the cashier makes a mistake and he doesn't want to listen to my argument about the mistake, then it's time to go over the counter at him and have a fight and then run when they call the cops. On the wrong day, if a teenager cuts me off in my new car, it's time to go cut him off and leap out of that car with a tire iron and break his windshield because he deserves it on the wrong day. And then write him a letter later on anonymously to send him some money for breaking his windshield, see, because you ran away when the cops were called on the wrong day. My sponsor had been urging me to do some things, and I was dodging him. My last wrong day came when I was sober about three years, two and a half to three years, when I had a wrong day and went to an AA meeting, my meeting, my group. And my best friend in the group came up to me and said, uh, well, let me tell you, the best friend I had in the group was another younger guy. And we pal around together. But somebody sicker than me said, he's talking about you. And it was the wrong day to tell me that because I knew exactly what he said, even though I hadn't heard a word. You know, it was the wrong day. So I brooded on that, and I got to the meeting. And my friend came up to me and said, hey, hi, how you doing? And I smacked him in the mouth. And he smacked me in the mouth. 
and we rolled around on the floor at our uh, group meeting, uh, setting a good example for the newcomer. Uh, and I did what all good drunks do. I went out and sat beside a tree and uh, started to cry and was going to get drunk again. I went to see my sponsor and told him I was going to get drunk. And he said to me, yes, you are. Do you want to? And I told him the truth. I said, no, I don't. I didn't want to get drunk more than anything in the world. I did not want to get drunk. You can be all screwed up. You can be a nutcase. You can be an egomaniac. You can be as sick as they come, in my opinion. And if God gives you one gift, if he gives you as he gave me the desire to be sober more than anything else in the world, I don't think you have to worry about whether or not you'll get to the place where you'll work these steps. Your personality, if it's like mine, will take you there. And I thank my God that I wanted to stay sober that day. Because when I said to him, yes, I do, he said, then you've got to do some things. And I told him in my judgment these things didn't apply to me. And he told me in no uncertain terms that if he wanted my judgment, he'd have come down to the slammer and talk to me the last time I was locked up. And uh, he said, you've got to do these steps. And I told him I couldn't do these steps because I'm an atheist and they have to do with God. And he looked at me and uh, cursed and uh, said, tell me, hotshot, what has the fourth step got to do with God? And I read it. And on the face of it, it has nothing to do with God. I read it out loud and it said, made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. And he said, where's God in that step? And I said, well, no place. He said, then do it. Now, I'm here to tell you that the fourth step has everything to do with God. But I didn't know it at the time. He sandbagged me. They sandbagged me. <laughs> so I got serious and I said to him, uh, a wonderful word. I said, okay. I don't know how to do this. Uh, tell me how to do it. And he pointed me to the pages 66 through 72 of the big book right around there. I won't quote the pages because I don't know numbers. And it tells you how to do a four-step inventory. It tells you to start by listing the names of the people you hate and why. I've learned more from listing the names of the people I hate and why than from any other source. It pointed me to the 12 and 12 talked about the cardinal sins as a guide, talked about writing a little bit of a case history, and finally he said to me, why don't you just start with the worst thing you ever did? And I knew what that was, and I've got to tell you about it, because it's as much a part of alcoholism as puking on my shoes. And I don't want to tell you about it, because it stuck like a fishbone in my throat when I remembered it. Worst thing I ever did in my life, I did to my father. My father was a good old man, an Irish man. 
and I was his oldest son. And when I was being run out of my hometown, he was on his deathbed. He uh, was as tall as I am and uh, weighed about 100 pounds at that time. And uh, with the peculiar logic that goes with this disease and this evil that's in us, it seemed to me that what was wrong with me was his fault. So I told that dying old man that it was his fault, that the worst thing that ever happened to me was to have him for a father, that if I ever saw him alive again, it would be too soon. And I walked out of that house, and I never did see him alive again. And I had to write that down. And that's the worst thing that I ever did in my life. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I could take back five minutes of my life, but I can't. I never told that man while he was alive that I loved him. And I did, and I wish I had. And if you love somebody, tell them today. Don't wait till they're dead. So I wrote that down. And I wrote down every other rotten thing I'd ever done. And made the list of the names. And did what else is suggested with respect to the fourth step. And I went to see a priest, not because I believed in God, but because I knew priests couldn't squeal. And got in line in a confessional without warning and went in to see the priest in the confessional and wanted three hours of his time with 55 people behind me. And it didn't work too well. He said, uh, yeah, 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 how many times? Yes, yeah, say three our fathers, help me. Yeah, he was a good man. He was a good man. He said, if you want to talk to me, make an appointment. Come back. Well, that didn't work too well, so I went to see my sponsor and I told him what I just told you, and I told him everything else that I could remember that I had written down. And I did not look in his eye. And when I got all done, he crossed and uncrossed his legs a few times, and he listened to me, and then he said, uh, Is that all? <laughs> I'd made the confession of the century, and all the man said was, Is that all? Now, I did that. I did those two steps as best I could 26 years ago. I did them as honestly and as best as I could. I've done them again more thoroughly. But I did a good job then. I did a good job. Nothing was hidden. For the first time in my entire life, I felt like a member of the human race. I found out I didn't commit any original sins. I found out that I could let another man that I respected above all others know who I was and still have his love and respect and I didn't know that till I told him about me as a result of the feelings that I got and a sense of belonging truly that began to come to me I backed up and started over and resigned from the debating society and went through the motions of attempting 
to work these steps as they're written slowly over a period of years to put them into my life. I read a lot of books because I wanted a more complicated answer to the problem of alcoholism. And there ain't but one or two that ever supplemented the big book. One of them, funny enough, is mentioned in the big book. And that's Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. And that's tough to read because it's a series of lectures he gave at Oxford University a hundred years ago. But it's worth the trouble because James says that there's a principle that works when all others fail. I had a terrible time, a terrible time, getting rid of the mind so that I could seek God with the soul. James suggests that there is a way to do this that works when all others fail. He calls it the as-if principle. And it works like this. If you wait till I feel like telling you the truth, I'll never get there. If I want to feel like an honest man, James says, tell the truth for six months. If you want to know what it's like to love, you don't have to wait till you feel loving. Show love for six months and you will feel like a loving human being. If you wish to believe in God, and I did because I saw my sponsor, James suggests act as if you do. James suggests that that works for atheists. I tell you profoundly that it worked for this atheist. Deeply, convincingly, permanently, however slowly, over a period of years. Let me just talk a little bit more about recovery and, and we'll, we'll get on with it. When I finished talking to my sponsor, he said to me, uh, you still got a mother? I said, yeah. Does she know you're alive? I don't know. When's the last time you saw her? I said, five years ago. I said, why don't you go see her? I said, okay. Better yet, why don't you write her a letter? If she's still living, we don't want to kill her by surprise. So I wrote to my mother. Uh, my mother's like a lot of mothers, like Dillinger's mother. Uh, my Johnny's not a bad boy, you know. Uh, come home. So I'm home to see my mom. She was delighted to see her oldest son, my good old Irish Catholic mother. My brothers were not glad to see me, but I kept coming back. I learned about the joy of making amends as a result of a suggestion made by my sponsor, and I'll tell you that it's a trip 
You don't want to miss. Ever. I went back and took my mom to church in my car. I let her tell me how to drive my car, even though she never drove a car in her life. I took her shopping while she went and bought needles and thread and talked to everybody in the whole damn town. I would take her wherever she wanted to go, and I would sit around with her for the rest of her life, wherever I was stationed in the world, it didn't matter, I'd go home, and let her listen, listen to her tell me about the old tales for the 55th hundredth time, and smile and laugh at the appropriate places and kiss her and tell her I loved her. I was sober 10 years when my mom died, and I was with her when she died. And I considered that to be a direct gift from God to me. I had always had that thing about my father stuck in my throat, even though life had changed dramatically. And as fate would have it, when she got sick, she got sick very suddenly. She was an old woman, and she had a stroke. And I happened to be home on leave with her when she had the stroke. The only one there. And she went to the hospital. My brothers and my sister came home. They had to go back because they had families and a job. I had to leave. And I stayed in the hospital with her and uh, got the chance to feed her three times a day. She couldn't talk. So I'd go over and feed her breakfast and lunch and dinner and massage the food out of her cheeks and uh, tell her I loved her and held her hand. And that's the best thing I ever did in my life. And I was with my mom when she had a second stroke shortly thereafter, and she died. And I consider that a direct gift from God, as I understand God to be, to me. And I'm forever grateful for that gift and that memory that erases sometimes the guilt and the remorse that I sometimes feel in the middle of the night when I remember things that I wish I hadn't done. I know I'm forgiven and I know I'm pardoned, but sorrow and regret don't hurt us, as long as we know there's redemption too. I've been a member of AA groups all over the world. I stayed in the Air Force. I stayed sober in Vietnam. I was a rocket to stardom once I didn't drink. Uh, I was ultimately commander of the Apollo Recovery Center when Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon. I was the man down below waiting to pick him up. Uh, passed over a second lieutenant who was a two-year below the zone major at the time. Uh, I never had trouble making a living. There's a big difference between making a living and learning how to live, and what I'm talking about tonight is learning how to live. I was promoted to lieutenant colonel. I was on the promotion list for lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. I was a commanding officer several times. I belonged to AA groups all over the world. Uh, I was 42 years old when I got this promotion list. Uh, I had long before that found a relationship with God as I understand God to be, and I found that relationship back where I left it back in my own faith, slowly, but going back there. T.S. Eliot, the poet, says about us such true words. He says, the purpose of all our journeys 
is to return to the place from whence we began and know it for the first time. I was 42 years old. I had been seeking knowledge of God's will in my life for some time. And an inner voice in here, not the one that lived in my head, began to tell me that what I was supposed to do with my life was get out of the Air Force, go to college, then go to law school, become a lawyer, learn to be a trial attorney, and represent people who can't afford to represent themselves. And when it got too uncomfortable not to do it, I got out. I went to college. And, uh, I graduated with highest honors. I ought to throw that out there, uh, being a test taker. And I don't take any credit for that. It wasn't any trouble. I applied to law schools at 10 because I uh, thought I would not be accepted. I was an old man and was accepted by 10 law schools. And I started law school at age 45 and uh, put one foot in front of the other, and I was graduated with honors, took two bar exams. Why take one when you can take two? Pennsylvania and New Jersey at the same time, one right after the other, and passed them both. I walked into the public defender's office in Trenton, New Jersey, and informed this little Jewish guy that was the boss, who almost fainted, that I was exactly what he was looking for. He didn't know me from a cake of soap, but I told him that it was my destiny to be a great trial attorney here, and he needed to hire me, and uh, he was so chagrined he did. <laughs> And that's what I did for a living, and that's what I do for a living, and I do it well, and that's all I'll say about it. What's this all about? What is AA? What does it mean to me? What am I talking to you about? I'm talking to you about journey. I'm talking to you about a gift that comes to us unearned. Unearned. There are far more worthy people than we are still suffering out there sometimes. And I don't know why I got the gift to come back to my second AA meeting and to be open enough to listen long enough to have the truth punch its way through layer upon layer of arrogance and pride and cynicism and atheism. If you consider the nature of that gift, treasure it and keep it with you. You will find, as I have, in attempting to work these steps and in attempting to do just one thing more, to try as best I can on an ongoing basis to seek my Creator, in spite of my better judgment, to seek my Creator to seek knowledge of his will for me in my life, I don't have to worry about cosmic decisions. It is revealed to me humbly 
on a daily basis what I am to do, how I am to serve, how I am to stand here and to be able to look into your eye and tell you that I love you and that that's miraculous and that we are one, all of us, brothers and sisters, of God as we understand God to be. And if you're embarrassed by that, so is I. And it's too bad. <laughs> because sooner or later I got unembarrassed. And sooner or later I recognized what it means. And one day I was just fortunate enough to know that that's all I really am, is a child of God. And that if I remember that and take direction from God as I understand God to be, to pray regularly, to try to be a little bit humble, to remember that I must serve and not be served, that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do here, and my engines are in sync, and I hum along. When I forget that, it backfires, and I try not to forget it. I'm going to close uh, and whenever I close or whenever I talk I always remember the guys that gave me the gift their faces and their names are here now with me they're dead, all of them. I'm the last of that gang. I know them to be the keepers of the flame. It's in their footsteps that we walk. Twenty-nine years ago, they passed me a message. They did for me what's been done for you, a 12-step call. They were wonderful men. They kept the message straight. They passed it to me in good order. I must pass it to you as best I can in good order. It's in their name that I congratulate you on your 51st convention. It's in their name that I tell you I love you. It's in their name that I salute you. Thank you.